Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text for this evening will come from the book of Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll be looking at two verses, verses 13 and 14. And this will wrap up our mini-series on the Holy Trinity, one God and three persons. We spent this month exploring Ephesians 1, highlighting the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit this evening. And so we have seen how God has performed His work of grace for His people, for the salvation of His people throughout this series. And tonight we're going to show how the Holy Spirit, performing His work of grace, seals and secures our salvation in Jesus Christ. We have seen in this series that the the Trinity is a mystery. Any discussion of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and how there can be one God in three persons brings us to a place where we say it is so mysterious we can't quite get our hearts and minds around it. Herman Bovink helps us when he says, in the doctrine of the Trinity, we feel the heartbeat of God's entire revelation for the redemption of humanity. And so again, thus far, we have seen in Ephesians 1, as we explore the work of the Trinity, we have seen how God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've seen how the Father blessed us and elected us and predestined us and adopted us in Christ. And we've seen how in Christ we have been redeemed and we are being reconciled and we will be rewarded. And then last but not least this evening, we will see that the Spirit is the one who seals us and secures our salvation. That's what we want to explore this evening. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word from Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14. The word of God reads, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. Kill the dragon, get the girl. That is how Nate Wilson describes the whole story of the Bible in his book, Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl. Kill the dragon, get the girl. And according to the scriptures, that is exactly what Jesus Christ did. The scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, which he did. Another way to frame that is to say he came into the world to kill the dragon and to get the girl. In the context of the book of Ephesians, there are beautiful statements made about the relationship between Christ and the church. Romantic statements made about Christ, who is the bride, pursuing 
Christ, who is the groom pursuing the church, which is his bride. Beautiful statements about the relationship of Christ and the church. In Ephesians 5, Paul calls this relationship between Christ and the church a profound mystery, a profound mystery. Christ loved the church. Ephesians 5 says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. And we see this in the gracious sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. Christ cleanses us by the washing with water through the word. And we see this in the gracious sacrament of baptism. That Christ will present the church to himself as a radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And we see this gracious work in the preaching and teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ as he cleanses his church with the water of his word. We also see that Christ loves the church as his own body. He feeds and cares for the church because the church is his body. And we see this in the gracious sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And so in the context of the book of Ephesians, we see this beautiful relationship laid out in front of us. A relationship that is mysterious between Christ and the church, between the groom and his bride. Jesus Christ came into the world to kill the dragon and get the girl. He went to war for her. He laid down his life for her. He purchased her with his blood. And his blood, as it turns out, is the bride price for the church. And this is the price he paid in order to earn the right to take her as his bride. But not only that, he also gave her a glorious gift as a sign and seal of his promise to take her as his wife and to keep her safe and secure, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. And what is that glorious gift? The glorious gift is what we just read about. It is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. As you think about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, you might wonder, who is he or what is it? Many people think of the Spirit as the kind of force that you might hear about in the movie Star Wars. May the force be with you. And this, the spirit for many people is this sort of ethereal, abstract energy field that is operating throughout the world and sometimes rubs up next to you and you feel a little, little tingle. Well, that was the Holy Spirit for some people. But that is not how the spirit is revealed to us in the scriptures. In the scriptures, this, the Holy Spirit is revealed as a person one of the persons of the Holy Trinity. And what his person and work is can be summarized in this way, that the Holy Spirit has come to center you on Christ, to consecrate you to God, to convict you of your sins, to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ, to comfort you in your sorrows, to counsel you in your life's work and in the course of your life. In other words, the Spirit's gracious work is to change you, change your life for your good, but also for the glory of God. 
What the Spirit wants to do in you and in his church more than anything else is to transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. So the Spirit is for you. He is for you, working for you. He is for you. And he dwells among the church and he dwells in the hearts of God's people. The point that Paul is making in Ephesians 1 is that the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to us for two reasons. One is to seal, seal us with the unbreakable promise of divine love. And the other is to secure us with an eternal pledge of redemption. And I want us to look at those two things in the next few minutes. First, let's think about what it means that the Holy Spirit is the seal The seal of our redemption. We heard in the scripture readings before the sermon that the word seal appears in a variety of ways, in a variety of places in the scriptures. In the book of Esther, chapter 8, we learn that a Gentile king gave a Jewish man his signet ring. And he said to that man, you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, with regard to your own people, and do it in the name of the king. And then here it is. Seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. This is the kind of thing that's in the backdrop of Paul's mind as he writes that the spirit is the seal of our redemption. God has written the gospel. God has written the gospel out for us. He has put the spirit in us, sealed us. Now think about this. If what is written in the king's name and what is sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked in the human sphere. If it is true that a sinful human king and his word and sign cannot be revoked, how much more the word and the seal and the sign given to us by a divine king? The word and seal of the gospel cannot be revoked. The gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. To put that in very simple terms, it means that when God gives these gifts And these graces to us, when God seals his promises for his people, these things cannot be taken back or broken. No man has the power to crack the seal. No force in heaven or hell can break the seal. There is nothing that can undo what God has done for his people. That's Paul's point. We also learned in Song of Solomon that the bride says to the groom, it's the lover speaking to the beloved, set me as a seal upon your heart. Set me as a seal upon your arm for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. In the gospel of Jesus Christ This prayer offered by the lover to the beloved is granted in love. Christ's promises to the church bride are sealed to the church with the Holy Spirit, not only upon our hearts, not only upon your heart, but also upon the heart of Jesus Christ and placed upon his arm. He wears his heart on his sleeve. He loves you. He loves the church and he laid down his life for you. 
And then we learned in 2 Timothy 2 that God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. I know a lot of pastors who look at their congregations and they wonder, does the Lord know those who are his? Are, are these people God's people? Sometimes we look at our neighbors and friends and we wonder if they are in or out. But the Lord knows those who are his and he has marked his people with an indelible seal. So we might not always know those who are the Lord's. We might even doubt about ourselves that we are the Lord's. But the Lord knows those who are his and he's marked his people. So you might wonder whether you are the Lord's. You might wonder whether you are the Lord's. But what you need to know is that if you are the Lord's, he's marked you with the seal and you bear the seal of the spirit. And this seal, while not visible to men, not even visible to your pastors, the spirit is an indelible mark of God's grace that distinguishes you from the world. But one of the ways that you can bear out or prove that this seal is on you is what Paul says, those That the Lord knows they don't just bear that inscription, but they also live consistently with it. They depart from iniquity. And so in other words, you're going to see changes in your life. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Then you will become a holy people to the Lord. And that's good news, isn't it? And so think about what that seal is. God has sealed his promises He's put his signet ring in the wax, as it were, but he sealed his promises to his church. And that seal isn't just out in cosmos somewhere, out in outer space, but it's upon the heart of Christ and his arm. And God has sealed his people to himself. A second thing that comes along with this is security, security. We live in a world that has become more and more dangerous Our identities are at risk. Your credit cards are are under threat. Uh, Your social security numbers could be taken at any moment. People live in paranoia of all this kind of thing. Uh, Some of you have your social media accounts hacked from time to time. And you wonder, how did someone get into this? And why in the world would anyone want to know uh, about my secrets anyway? Security is a real big issue in our life. It's a practical matter. Well, it's also an issue when it comes to Christ and the church. So a lot of times as we think about this issue in Ephesians 1 and people want to help explain it, uh, they, they'll gravitate towards the more financial illustrations and they want to talk about security deposits and, and give you illustrations about the purchase of property and, and those kinds of things. But I think there's something else going here and I want to go the more romantic route this evening, okay? And not so much the financial side, but look at the, the romantic side of this. The spirit here is called a guarantee of our inheritance, a guarantee of our inheritance. Some of your translations might say he is the earnest, okay, the earnest of our inheritance. Well, I want to suggest to you that maybe a better way to think of this is in keeping with the analogy of Christ and the church and the, and the, the groom and the bride coming together in relationship, you might think of the Holy Spirit as Christ's engagement ring to the church. 
It's his engagement ring to the church. Now, engagement rings used to mean something different than they do now. Now they're sort of like promise rings. They're, they're, they've lost their force a bit. But it used to be that the engagement ring was a sign of more things to come. It was a sign of, of someone bringing his wealth and his power and his strength saying, I'm going to keep taking care of you. Here's a sign of it. It's in this ring. In Mexico, they still have a, a tradition. It's, maybe it's going away, but the tradition has to do with something called arras, A-R-R-A-S, arras. It's a wedding tradition in which the groom gives his bride a gift of 13 gold coins in an ornate box. 13, some say 13, refers to Jesus and the apostles who are bearing witness of the promise that the groom is making to his bride. Others say that 13 refers to the 12 months of the year. It's a sign of prosperity. And then 13, the 13th month, would be a sign of poverty. And behind that is the idea of for richer or for poorer. But we're hoping more for richer, not for poorer, right? The coins are an earnest sign and a seal of the groom's promise to provide for his wife and for their family. But they are also a sign of the bride's trust in his ability to do so. It's a sign and seal of the bride's trust in his ability to do so. So he offers the 13 gold coins. And when she receives the 13 gold coins, she's saying, I believe that you can do this. Now bring that over to what Paul has said about the Holy Spirit being given to the church and being given to you. What is Christ saying to us in giving us the Holy Spirit? He is saying, I am promising to provide all you need for life and godliness. I'm promising to provide salvation for you. I promise that it's all going to work out. I'm going to give all of my power, all of my weight, all of my work and glory is going towards this. You can trust me. And when we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are in effect saying we believe that you can keep your word. We believe that you're able to do what you promise to do. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the church of Jesus Christ is God's guarantee, his earnest Promise to the church that he will do what he said he will do in Christ. But it's not just at the corporate level that this holds true. It's also in the individual. In other words, you can go home and lay your head on your pillow tonight and rest assured that Christ has made promises to you, sealed those promises with his spirit and the presence of his spirit in your life is assurance to you, guaranteed to you that Christ will come And acquire you for himself. He will come and take the church as his bride. He'll keep his word. He'll keep his promise to you. The ESV says here that this happens until we acquire possession of our inheritance. But a better way to think of this is to say until God redeems us. As his possession. And this is based on things we see in the Old Testament. The Levites, the priests in the Old Testament did not inherit land. They didn't have land allotted to them. 
God made it clear that those people were set apart for his purposes and that their inheritance was the Lord God himself. But also the inheritance was the fact that God was going to take them to be his special people. And now that language is applied to you, supplied to us in the church. So I want you to know that as baptized believers, you are the Lord's special treasured possession. That's what Paul is getting at here. And not just this congregation of his people, but all of his people throughout all of the world and all space time history. We are a part of God's special treasured possession that he plans to inherit, bring to himself, take possession of himself in Christ. So the Holy Spirit guarantees that we will inherit the Lord and that the Lord will inherit us. At the end of the day, we can say, as we did last week, we can echo something from Song of Solomon. We can say with confidence, I am the Lord and the Lord is mine. This is the language of the lover speaking to the beloved. The thing we notice in Ephesians 1 as we consider the person and work of the Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is applying salvation to the church, the vast community of God's elect people throughout all of history from the creation of the world to the consummation of it. And what Paul is getting at here in Ephesians 1, and then this this is borne out uh, more clearly through the rest of the book, is this. That the Holy Spirit is the one who has given you ears to hear the true gospel of grace. The Holy Spirit has opened the eyes of your hearts to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. The Spirit gave you the gift of faith so that you could believe the gospel. The Spirit is set as a seal upon your heart to secure your salvation in Jesus Christ. And so it's true that by the grace of the Spirit, the Lord's church may one day stand before God in the judgment. And we may say with full confidence, here I am, signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. Signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. Signed in baptism, sealed by the Spirit, delivered by the cross. This is the good news of Jesus Christ that drives us to worship and praise God for his glorious grace. Well, each week I've wanted to remind you of one thing that I think summarizes Ephesians 1. And I want to remind you of it again tonight. Here's the crux of the matter. The crux of the matter is this, as we consider the mystery of the triune God, the mystery of the Holy Trinity In the context of Ephesians 1, what do we conclude? We conclude that the Father loves you. That Jesus is by your side. The Spirit is for you. And God is relentless in His pursuit of you. That's what Paul is getting at here. And all of that is intended to move us to offer words of praise and declaration of praise and worship. For the triune God, we do all of this for the praise of his glorious grace. Now let us fall down before the majesty of our good God in prayer. And I would like to echo the prayer of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 1, 15 and following. O God, Father of glory, I give you thanks for Christ's covenant church. 
And I pray that you may give us all the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of, the, of our Father God, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your great might, that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God, we thank you for the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. I pray that we will not grieve him, but that we will rejoice in his presence and bring glory to Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.